Welcome to PM Lessons Learned, a podcast for project managers, helping project managers by sharing lessons learned. Increase your PM knowledge, build business relationships, increase your effectiveness, increase your marketability, gain professional support. Join our group and take part in our conference calls. Details at pmlessonslearn.com. Hello, and welcome to the PM Lessons Learned monthly PMP exam study group conference call and podcast. This is podcast number 167. We are recording this session on the 4th of December, 2014, and we are totally focused on the 5th edition of the PMBOK Guide. My name is Dana Safford. I'm the host of the PM Lessons Learned monthly PMP exam study group conference calls. I've been a PMP since version 2 of the PMBOK Guide. I'm also a certified ITIL version 3 expert and a Microsoft certified systems engineer. I have over 25 years of project management experience in the IT industry. I'm currently a critical situation manager at Red Hat. And in this role, I take a very complex situation that affects a Red Hat customer's enterprise production environment, and I manage a project with a virtual technical team that quickly resolves the issue. So remember, you don't have to have the term project manager in your job title to actually be a project manager. As far as announcements go, we're still in the dire needs of volunteers. So when you finish up your studies, if you'd like to come help us out, volunteer for a few things, we'd like to get some of these other calls going that we used to have, I'll talk about in a moment. And we need volunteers to make all that stuff happen. All that information is on our website, www.pmlessonslearning.com. Our presenter for this session is me, of course, and our topic is PMLL Project Risk Management, Part 1, PMBOK 5E. And here we'll do the first three of the six processes that are in the Project Risk Management Knowledge Area. On the 31st of July, 2013, the fifth edition of the Guide to the Project Management Body of Knowledge, also called the PMBOK Guide, became the basis for the Project Management Professional or PMP exam. This month's PMP study group call continues the deep dive, we're almost done as a matter of fact, into the fifth edition, or 5E, of the PMBOK. In this session, we will begin the focus on the Project Risk Management Knowledge Area as we look at the first three processes that belong to the Project Risk Management Knowledge Area as laid out in the fifth edition. I will provide insight and practical examples of everything you need to know to build your critical knowledge mass and pass the PMP exam on the first attempt. If you haven't already downloaded a PDF copy of this session's presentation, please do so. If you are in the live free screen sharing.com virtual meeting room that we're in right now, the file is in the meeting resources box. When you log in, you'll see a bunch of down arrows next to the file names. If you're there, and you can just click those and download the files. If you're not in the virtual meeting room, to find out how to download the files and podcasts of all of the PM Lessons Learned sessions, go to our website, www.pmlessonslearned.com. And in the left-hand navigation column, you see a link to files and presentations. Just follow that over to our file area, and you'll be able to download not only the session for risk that we're doing right now, but all of the other presentations for all the other knowledge areas and all the 47 processes. We're almost done, as I mentioned before. We're doing the first half of risk. Next time, we'll do the second half of risk. Then we just have the integration knowledge area, and then we're done with the 47 processes. So it's taken us a while to get through there, but we're almost there. Speaking of looking at files in there, in the monthly PMP exam study group conference call file area, you'll see the slides for this session, as I mentioned. The name of the file for this session is PMLL Project Risk Management Part 1 for DEC 14, MBOC 5E. It's a PDF file, and its title is exactly the same thing, PMLL Project Risk Management Part 1 for December 14, PMBOK 5E. 
In the Monty PMP exam study group called File Area, you will also see a PMBOK 5th edition brain dump, a PMBOK 5th edition study resources file, and a PMBOK 5th edition ITTO list file. And remember, the Internet is a very, very big place. If you choose to use study material from another source other than PM Lessons Learned, make sure you know it's PMBOK base. Now that July 31, 2013 is well behind us, make sure that you have material based on the PMBOK 5th edition. You should remember that there's roughly about a 50% difference from the 4th edition to the 5th edition. That's my estimate. Some authors, some of the facilitators will give you a slightly different version. Point is, there's a big difference there, so you don't want to use anything else. Those differences are mostly in the knowledge groups and the processes and their ITTOs. There are still also a lot of evil people out there that will still sell you material from the 4th and even the 3rd editions of the PMBOK Guide. So if the material on the website or the book or flashcards, whatever it is you are buying or you're using, especially if you're blanking down money, doesn't explicitly say that the material is based on the fifth edition of the PMBOK, leave it alone. So please be very careful out there. The world is a bad place for people trying to rip you off. Okay, so we are PMLessonsLearned.com, project managers helping project managers to make a difference. I'll thank you in advance those participating in this month's live conference call and those who download and use the podcast. Let's get started. I'm going to shift over to the first slide. And as normal, our first slide talks about the calls that we'd love to have when we are at full strength. Right now, it's the first Thursday of the month, so we're on the PM Lessons Learned PMP study group. On the second Thursday of each month, uh, we'd love to have our job shot call. Well, we need somebody to run that. That'll be a call for people who are in transition or with the need to identify potential career paths can go to help each other out. And finally, on the third Thursday of each month, we'd love to have our PM Lessons Learned Best Practices call. And on this call, it provides presentations on a wide variety of project management and soft skills topics. And to listen to any of this stuff by phone or grab the podcast, go to our website, www.pmlessonslearned.com. And also, if you get a chance, please join our Yahoo and LinkedIn groups. Both of those are aptly named PM Lessons Learned. Join those guys, and you'll see the notifications of when we're doing stuff, when I throw files out there, when I post the podcast, things along those lines. So I'm going to move on to the next slide here. We have our call norms. This is an interactive call. We'd love for you to participate, but I've muted all your phone lines. So we cut down on the noise. So if you'd like to ask me a question, anything along those lines, you'll need to do a star six on your phone to unmute your phone, then yell out my name, get my attention. I don't mind being interrupted at all. And ask a question while it's fresh in your mind. Don't wait for a while because then you'll forget the question and I'll forget the answer. So interrupt me anytime you want. Not a problem. Star six will unmute your line and you can get my attention. And then when we're done, I'll ask you to do yet another star six and mute your line. Okay, so let's move on to the next slide. Here's our email address. PMP study at pmlessonslearn.com. And with our email address, you can ask any questions you would like on anything going on that will help you with your PMP studies and things along those lines. Moving on to the next slide, we have a bit of legalese. Participants in this call are meant to use the contents of this session as additional study material. Much of this session comes from an actual study guide. It's the Project Management Professional Exam Study Guide, the seventh edition written by Kim Heldman, put out as part of the Cybex series by John Wiley and Sons. You see the ISBN number there if you have the slides in front of you. It's a wicked good book. It is one of those two-inch thick paperback tomes that I'm sure you're used to seeing if you've been studying for a while. It's got a bunch of nifty practice tests in there, assessment tests, review questions, things along those lines. And it used to come with a CD. Now it comes with about a 390 megabyte download from the publisher's website. 
You log in up there, download that, and it has Mac and PC versions of more paper practice tests, uh, practice test engine, an online test engine, so that you can practice online. It's got a bunch of audio files as well. It's a very good deal, a lot of good stuff in there for roughly 40 to $60 U.S., depending upon where you get it from. But you don't have to use just that guide. Use whatever guide you want. I'm using this guide because much of the material in the session comes from that guide. I'm using all the stuff with the permission of the publisher. I am a registered instructor with John Wiley. So let's move on to the next slide, and we'll get to the title of what we're actually talking about. We're talking about Project Risk Management, Part 1 of 2. It is December 4, 2014. And move on to the next slide. And we've got a rough approximation of Table 3.1 from the PMBOK Guide. It's the big table with the 10 knowledge areas going horizontally as rows, the five process groups going vertically as columns, and the intersection of the rows and the columns, they're stuff or no stuff, depending upon what knowledge area we happen to be talking about or what process group we're talking about. You see partway down on the row labeled number 11, project risk management is highlighted in yellow. There's where we'll be spending the next two sessions. We'll be handling the first three processes there. You notice they're all in the planning group. Five out of the six processes from risk management are all in the planning group, and then it goes over and then monitoring, controlling. We have the last one that we'll handle in the next session. So make sure you know the things in this slide. And as we were talking before we started the call up, this is the table that you want to try to reproduce on your brain dump inside of that 15-minute time period and a bunch of formulas and things like that as well to help you during the exam when you have a brain cramp, you can't remember something. Let's move on to the next slide. We have our agenda here. This is podcast number 167, as I mentioned. We're talking about the PMBOK 5th edition, talking about project risk management. We're going to be handling three processes in this session. We'll be doing 11.1, plan risk management, 11.2, identify risks, and 11.3, perform qualitative risk analysis. And you're going to hear me say a gajillion times tonight, you'll always perform a qualitative risk analysis, but you'll only sometimes perform a quantitative one. So I said it once already. We haven't even started anything yet, so you'll get tired of me saying that, but it's something really important to remember. Let's move on to the next slide. And what we have here now is the organization chart style view of the project risk knowledge area. As I mentioned, it looks like an organization chart with project risk management up at the top. And we see that there are six processes involved here, as I mentioned, all nicely labeled, one through six. But this is an eye chart. So what you want to make sure you do is not to worry about this so much, but notice the numbering scheme that's on here. You'll need to pay attention to that numbering scheme so that as you go through things, you'll be able to see that if we are looking at, say, the project management plan input for plan risk management, it's got a number in there. It's actually going to be item number 11.1.1.1. So there's a lot to remember there, and just make sure that you have that together. You don't have to worry about the numbering scheme for the exam. It's just one way to help you study. If they have to reference something, it's much easier to reference section 11.1.1.1 or .2, whatever the case may be, than it is to go find that one thing named project management plan in the risk section because the project management plan is referenced other places as well. This whole thing is an iterative process. It loops around things mentioned multiple times and referenced multiple times. The data flows back and forth like crazy. We won't get into the data flows with any of this stuff, but it really is a very multidirectional flow, if you will. I'm going to move to the next slide. We'll begin to talk about planning for risks. What are risks? 
They're basically events that pose either a threat or an opportunity to your project, whatever you're working on. The risk is basically it's uncertainty. You know, you don't know what exactly what's going to happen. You might have an idea, but you don't know exactly what's happened. So the more you know about a risk, the more planning you can do around that risk and be prepared should that risk occur, should that trigger event occur, better way to say it. Moving on to the next slide, there's a basic concept involved here, that risk management focus on your known unknowns. It tries to be proactive because it's much better to be proactive, just like in medicine, in healthcare. It's much better, cheaper, easier to handle something proactively, preventively, than it is once you've come down with something or once an event has triggered. It always takes a whole lot more time, effort, money, pain, suffering, whatever the case may be, if you have to go through that actual event, then if you can prevent it. So the more you know about what your risks are and how to work around them, the easier it is for you and your project. Let's move to the next slide talk a bit more about risk management. It focuses on the future. It focuses on what things could happen. And you'll find as we go through things that risk and information are inversely related. The more you know about a risk, the better you can handle it. The less you know about the risk, the harder it is to handle things. Moving on to the next slide. Historically, we find that project managers going back in the day, you know, in the day as, you know, as little as 10 years ago, when I was managing projects 10 years ago or so, I focused mainly on cost and schedule, doing the standard waterfall type of thing. Waterfall is the colloquial way, if you will, or the, the jargon way to describe the project management framework that the Project Management Institute preaches, ascribes to, if you will where everything just sort of flows from planning, plan, 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 then you implement, and then you control and whatever, and then you close. It all flows downhill in a nice waterfall fashion. If you know what a Gantt chart is, following a Gantt chart down. We'll talk about that in a little while. But that's waterfall. Basically worked on schedule and cost. But nowadays, with Agile coming on and extreme projects and things like that, and then the short cycles for things happening, you have to focus on a whole lot of other stuff around technology. It's not just for IT projects. It could be technology going on in medicine. It could be technology going on in construction. It doesn't have to be just an IT or computer-based thing. You have to figure out, can you even design what you're trying to do? If you can design it, can you build it? If you can build it, can you actually support the thing, whatever it is you're doing? And how long is it going to last? Look at the short time cycles for mobile phones nowadays. What's the risk of obsolescence? If you were to start building, we'll make up in some time frames, a five-year project with whatever mobile phone is in existence today. Chances are there's going to be something a whole lot smaller, a whole lot faster, a whole lot whatever in six months, let alone five years. So you have to be careful nowadays and work out all those risks as you're moving forward. So you're going to moving forward. Let's go to the next slide, and we'll define what a risk is all about. It's the measure of the probability of something and the consequence of not achieving that desired goal. We need to look at things as an equation. So those of you driving the car or doing the dishes, I'll read through what the equation is. It's basically, it's a function equation where the event of a risk is equal to the function of the probability that it could occur and the impact that it has. So risk equals function, open parenthesis, probability, comma, impact, close the parenthesis. Okay? Down below that, there's another equation, not an equation, if you will, but risks that are normally laid out in financial terms, dollars, RMBs, Deutschmarks, whatever the case may be. Probability is normally in a percent, 20%, 30% probability of something happening, and then the impact you're also going to want to measure financially. 
So again, back in whatever currency you happen to be using is how you're going to measure these things. And probability is the likelihood that this event is going to trigger, that something's going to happen, and the impact is the financial amount at stake, whatever it happens to be. And you're going to come up with some financial amount of impact. Okay? We'll move to the next slide. Now we've got one of the charts that I've got to have, one of the graphics I have for this. What you're looking at here is a set of probability impact curves. And for those who don't have the slide in front of them, we've got basically a quadrant graph, if you will, with an x-axis and a y-axis. The x-axis is labeled the magnitude of impact, and it ranges from no impact at the origin out going to the right to a huge, large impact at the far end of the graph. The y-axis is labeled probability of loss. And the low part, the origin part of that axis is labeled low probability, and the higher part is labeled high probability. And inside that quadrant, you've got two curves that sort of almost touch tangentially to the X and the Y axis. One is a bit closer to the actual axis lines and one's further out. And in between those two curves, we define three areas, if you will. The area right next to the origin is called the low-risk area. We'll call the green area in a few slides from now. The area in the middle is called the moderate-risk area. We'll call that one yellow in a little while. And the area at the far upper right-hand corner of that quadrant is labeled the high-risk area. We'll call that one red, in the red area. And what you can do is, for any of your projects, you can start putting dots on this graph and actually laying out, comparing projects. What, based on magnitude of impact and probability of loss, you can peg out individual risk elements for a single project, or if you can total up all of the risk elements for a group of projects in your organization, you can peg which projects are more risky than others. So you can do a whole lot of different things with this type of chart. As I said, is the graphic version. You're going to see a tabular version in a few slides from now as well because there's more than one way to do stuff, as it turns out. So let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about the definition of risk. We've already seen this equation that risk is a function of probability and impact, but in general, as the probability or the impact increases, so does the risk. There's more at stake. There's more financial capital at stake if the probability or the impact increases. And both the probability and the impact, therefore, must be considered in risk management. You can't just do one-sided risk management. You have to do two-sided risk management. And the risk constitutes a lack of knowledge of some type of event. Future events can go two ways, one of two ways. They could be unfavorable. You're going to lose something if you don't plan for it. That's a negative risk or an unfavorable risk. But there's also something called an opportunity. And that's if something aligns, this planet's aligned just right, you get the right amount of rain, you finish your construction that much sooner before a certain date, and some other thing comes into play, you actually stand the opportunity to make a whole lot more money doing something else. Maybe you can take over another company. Who knows what it might be? But there's an opportunity to do additional things and to reap additional benefits. So risks aren't always negative. They can be positive, and if they're positive risk, it's called an opportunity. You might see that on the test as well. Moving on to the next slide, let's talk about causes. Another element of risk has to do with just what's causing the whole thing. It's a source of danger, if you will. It's also called, can be called a hazard, if you will. Certain hazards can be overcome if you know about them. So the more you know about a certain hazard, the more you can plan for it, as I said earlier. If there's a large hole in the road, you're driving down the street, there's a large pothole, 
there would be a great danger to blow out a couple of tires. It happens quite often here in, in New England, where I'm at, right outside of Boston. We have potholes all the time, even in the summertime. So you have to be careful. If you travel that road frequently, you know where that pothole is probably. You know that road. So you can you can work around. You can either avoid the road totally that has the pothole or drive around the pothole. But if you're new to the area, driving that road for the very first time, you don't know that pothole's there, and you could wind up hitting it. That's going to cost you some money because you're going to blow out a tire or something like that or damage the front end of your car or something along those lines. So that you have to be careful of those things. And that leads to the second representation of that risk equation that you could see, where risk is a function of hazard and safeguard. Right? So hazard is what could happen. You could hit a pothole. What's the safeguard? You're going to drive around it, that type of thing. Risk increases with hazard but decreases with safeguards. The more safeguards you put in place, the lower the possibility of hitting that hazard. And hence, your financial impact to that risk is minimized. Okay? All right. Let's move on to the next slide. And we have some risk management concepts. We've got a couple slides with the concepts, and I'm going to give you a couple more graphics to go over those same concepts. All right. First, we'll talk about is risk appetite. Because everyone's got a different appetite for risk. Some people are risk seekers, some not so much. So risk appetite is what level of uncertainty are your stakeholders and you as a project manager willing to accept in exchange for the potential positive impacts of that risk, if there are any. If there are no positive impacts for that risk, then maybe you're not going to accept much at all because it's not to your benefit to accept anything. You have to figure that out. You never know going into a project, but over time, as you know your stakeholders, your project stakeholders and your project team, and if it's a project you've dealt with before or a similar project, then you know some of that stuff already. So you know what your risk appetite is going to be. You're going to figure that out. People are going to tell you what the risk appetite is. You'll see that in a little bit. And then there's a risk tolerance. That's the balance where the stakeholders are comfortable taking a risk because they think they know the benefits coming uh, that might be coming about, and that might outweigh what they don't want to lose is another way to look at that. All right, so there's a balancing act there, and that's what the tolerance is all about. They might avoid taking a risk because the cost or impact is just too much for the benefit they think they can get out of that. The other point here is the higher your risk tolerance is, the more you're willing to take on risk and its consequences if you've got a really high tolerance. Risk tolerance is different than risk appetite because risk appetite concerns the amount of uncertainty you're willing to take on, where risk tolerance is the amount of, uh, of consequences you're willing to take on. So one is, what would happen if, so do I want to put myself in any danger at all, where risk tolerance is, well, how much danger is it going to be? Is it going to be just a little bit? Well, maybe I'll do that. But if it's going to be a lot of danger, well, maybe not so much. It's going to depend on your risk appetite and your risk tolerance. Let's move on to the next slide, and we'll talk about risk threshold. Now, these are measures of uncertainty or the impact the organization is willing to operate within. So if you stay below the threshold, things are fine. You know, 10% impact in cost, 50% impact in schedule. You're going to find out in your scope and in your risk management plan that we're going to get into in a little bit what your organization is willing to accept, and then you're going to be able to know whether you have to stay below that threshold. If a monetary risk threshold might be 5% or 10% in your organization, then as long as you stay below that 5% or 10%, as I mentioned, you're fine. Organizations and stakeholders have different levels of risk as well, different tolerance points. Some people have a very low tolerance. They don't want to take any risk at all. Some have a higher tolerance and are willing to accept some risk. But it depends on your organization. And either one, either stakeholders or your management, 
are going to decide how they want to balance the risk itself with the potential reward is the way that works out. And it's important for you as a project manager to understand what that tolerance level is and where that line is. So you can go right up to the bottom of that line but not necessarily go over it. Okay? That's what that's all about. Now let's look at a couple of graphics on the next page and we'll see what happens with those and give you a couple of little clues to pay attention to. The first one, this first graphic slide, we have three little same XY drawings, if you will. One on the left is called risk averter. It's got a set of X and Y coordinates, and it's got a curved line. This one curves up at about oh, a 60-degree angle from the origin and then begins to slowly bend over and becomes almost horizontal as you get close to the top of the Y-axis and downrange, if you will, from the X-axis. And that's called the risk averter. And again, we have the same money down the bottom and uncertainty at the top. And then the graphic in the middle is risk neutral. That's just a straight line coming right out of the origin at 45 degrees. Everything is on a 45-degree angle. And then on the far right, we have something called the risk seeker. And this one, the curve starts off at about a 30-degree angle from the origin and then begins to bend up slightly so that by the time it gets to the far end down range on the x-axis, it's up close to the top of the y-axis. It's forming a smiley face, if you will, where the risk averter is forming a little frowny face. And the shape of those lines, those curves, is derived from what's been done in the past and how your stakeholders, how your company feels about risk. And a nifty way to remember all this stuff, as I mentioned, there's all your little clues here, if you will. There's a big exam point down here. Those big red exam dots there that you see at the bottom of the slide is if something's been on an exam recently and people tell me about it, I'll put it in here as a red dot. I don't ask them what's question 22 on the exam, but I ask them generally what's in there. And a couple of people mentioned that lately the risk stuff was important. They were asking a bunch of averter and seeker questions. So one way to remember this stuff, if you were to turn those curves into umbrellas, if you will, if you were to draw an umbrella, letter J, if you will, through the left-hand one with the bottom of the J pointing down, that's like an umbrella, if you will. So as risk comes down, you're trying to avoid rain, you're trying to avoid risk now because you're using the umbrella right side up, if you will. Okay, so you're avoiding this and you're not getting wet, you're not getting risk. Move over to the far right-hand side. Basically what you're doing is turning the umbrella upside down. Now the handle of the umbrella is coming up close to the top of the curve, so the umbrella is basically upside down. Now when the rain's coming in, you are collecting the rain, you're seeking the rain, and hence, same thing with risk. So risk seeker, the umbrella is upside down, risk averter, the umbrella is right side up. There's one way to look at that. So let's move on to the next slide. Any question on that before we move on to the next slide? Star 6 to unmute your phone. I think I'm going to move on. We have another graphic now to demonstrate the threshold piece of this. Almost the same X and Y axis chart here. The X axis is risk intensity, low to high. The Y axis is intensity of controls now. How much stuff do you have to do based on what the risk intensity is going to be? So now we've got the level of control on the Y axis, from ranging from low to extreme, and the risk intensity ranges from low to high. And we have, coming off the origin, a big fat line. And basically, as it gets closer to the middle of the range area, it starts to broaden out. And eventually, close to the top, it really fans out a lot. So it almost looks like a tornado, if you will, a slanted tornado. Not a tornado diagram that we'll see in the next session, but this is like a slanted tornado. 
or think of a cone of uncertainty as if you're looking at a hurricane predictor. It's very small down where the hurricane is right now, but over time, since there's some uncertainty, the cone of uncertainty gets broad. Same story here. Okay, and that cone of uncertainty that you're looking at are the range of controls. How much control do you have to do given the level of risk? And about three-quarters of the way up on the y-axis is a dotted line. And that dotted line says standard controls. Right? And that dotted line is the threshold line I talked about a little bit ago. This is the line where if you stay below that line, you only have to do a certain amount. Said before, you always do a qualitative risk. Sometimes you do a quantitative risk. Here's that line of demarcation, where if you are below the line, you can get by with just a qualitative risk analysis, and we'll get into in a little bit. But if you go above the line, then you have to do the qualitative risk analysis that we'll get into next time, next session. Right? So that's where the threshold goes. So you now know risk averter, risk seeker, is it shaped as an umbrella, and the level of threshold is just where on the chart where on that cone of uncertainty do you have to start doing more stuff? Where does that cone start to get wide enough that you have to pay attention to it? And as you get closer and closer to the far end of the risk intensity, hence the risk cost, uh, you have to do more and more stuff, hence the range of control. The width of that cone of uncertainty is much bigger because there's more stuff you have to do. Is that clear for everybody? Star 6, that meet your phone. All right, hearing nothing, I'm going to move on. And now we're going to talk about risk management plan. We're getting into more planning risk management because we're about ready to hit the first process. We're almost there. We've got two slides in and we'll actually hit it. And basically here, another example, the pinbox says, plan risk management process is the foundation for all risk processes that follow. You want to make sure that you pick up the correct amount of resources and the amount of time that should be dedicated to risk management so you know what's going on. And appropriate is determined based on your organization and what your stakeholders want to see. And they'll tell you about that. We'll get into that in a couple of slides from now. The most important function of the risk management plan is it serves as an agreed-upon baseline for evaluating the risks. So as whatever is going on, you need to make sure that you understand what those risks are and then move forward from there. All right. So let's move on to... The next slide here. Three more bullets. We'll talk about planning risk management processes again. Uh, it determines and documents how to plan for risks, as we sort of know already. It establishes an agreed-upon basis for evaluating risks, and it determines and documents the stakeholder risk tolerance levels. Right, so given all that, let's move on to the next slide, and we'll actually talk about the first process. What you're looking at now is a graphic that now takes the ITTOs, the risks, inputs, and the tools and techniques, and output puts them all in individual boxes in a horizontal format, much easier to read. And we can see that plan risk management process 11.1 has five inputs, three tools and techniques, and one output. So we will move on to the next slide, and we'll hit those inputs one at a time here. I'm going to read them off in case you're on a bus or walking the dog. They are project management plan, project charter, stakeholder register, enterprise environmental factors, and organizational process assets. Let's move on to the next slide, and we'll hit the first three. The first one is project management plan. This is going to include all the necessary subsidiary plans and baselines in order to run your project. And in there is going to be some things that are going to tell you what's important to look at from a risk point of view and what's not. All right. So we have to pull out of there what we need to. It's the first place we're going to start looking for risk because it's going to tell us what they want us to do. 
and what management, what your stakeholders want you to do. And once you build it, as an output of this process, the only output of this process, by the way, once you build your risk management plan, it'll be part of the project management plan itself, and it'll become an input for a bunch of the other processes down the pike, if you will, down the road. Then there's a project charter. Now, Project Charter will provide you, potentially, with some things that the stakeholders know have occurred in the past. So if this happens, do that type of thing. So you look in the charter for those types of risks that they already know about. It may be some high-level requirements. You should not take certain other types of risks, whatever the case might be. All right? And then we have Stakeholder Register. Now, Stakeholder Register is a table or a book, whatever, most likely a table, that contains details about your stakeholders. It's going to have their name, where they are, how much impact they have on your project, and one of the columns on your stakeholder register will be how risk-averse are they, perhaps. Are they risk-takers? Are they risk-seekers? Are they risk-neutral? Do they want to avoid all risks at all costs? Whatever the case might be, but you're going to find that in the stakeholder register. Let's move on to the next slide. Now we'll get into EEFs and OPAs. Enterprise environmental factors are EEFs. These are the things that you cannot control, but you have to use them because you operate, you work in the organization where you work. Okay? So these are policies, these are procedures, these are laws and regulations and things like that that will describe the degree of risk that you're allowed to operate under, and you should not go over. So as we talk about risk management planning, these are the things that will tell you what to do about risks, and you can't change them. There's nothing you can do about them, so they're in EEF. Then there's an OPA, Organizational Process Assets. These are the things that you can change that you have to use because you're in the organization where you work. And these are things that you can change them. You can add to them later on. So look at the things that are listed here, things like risk categories, definitions of concepts and terms, risk statement formats, standardized templates, the checklist, lessons learned, things along those lines, authority levels for decision-making. Maybe you come up with a new way to identify risk categories. Right? You can lay that out, formalize it, stick that into the OPA bin that I like to call it so that other people can use it. You can change it, and so let other people use it and have a benefit from your expertise. All right, so that is going to be it for the inputs. Pretty easy. Let's go on to the next slide. Now we'll talk about tools and techniques for plan risk management. There are three of those. I'll read them off. They are analytical techniques, expert judgment, and meetings. Now, as we go through these things, let's go on to the next slide. Actually, hit the first one, I should say. First is analytical techniques. These are where you want to understand your stakeholder risk appetites and tolerances, so now you've got to go do some work to find out. And you do an analysis of each one of your stakeholders that have a high impact on your project, and you're going to see how risk-averse they are. It's doing legwork, in other words. If there is an OPA in there that already lists that out in the stakeholder register that's already filled out, then fantastic. A lot of your work is done. You just want to update it, make sure that the organization hasn't changed too much. You need to take a name out, put a name in, and then do the homework on that new name, then do that. And then you might also have to develop or find a method for scoring the risk, what's high, medium, low type of thing. We'll get into that a little bit, talk about risk impact matrix. And then determine the risk exposure for the project. What types of risks have more impact on your project than other types of risks? That's the analysis you have to do. There's a gazillion ways of doing it, so I don't focus on any one example here because it's far too many. Just know that you have to understand that using analytical techniques, analyze your stakeholders, analyze the way to score the risks, and analyze the way that you can determine exposure. Okay? And then there's expert judgment. 
These are talking to the people who went before you. Uh, talking to senior manager as well, other project stakeholders, other project managers, other subject matter experts, industry groups, professional associations, things along those lines. Talk to whomever you need to talk to to find out more about the types of risk you have to deal with for your project. Relatively straightforward. Moving on to the next slide. Then there are meetings. These are all going to be planning meetings around risk management. You're going to figure out looking at your scope, looking at your risk register, looking at all the stuff you have, you're going to talk about it with your stakeholders, with your project team, whatever, and you're going to figure out what risk cost elements you might need to put in the budget. You're going to figure out what schedule activities might be impacted by risk and account for those. Assign who's going to be responsible for dealing with a specific type of risk. Maybe one individual is responsible for technical risks. Another is responsible for process risk. Another is responsible for material risks. If you're building a bridge, you need to worry about material a lot, that type of thing. Maybe uh, in that meeting you're going to develop a template for the risk categories. You're going to develop a set of definitions so everyone's talking the same language. So a risk category means the same thing for everybody. And you're probably then going to start thinking about developing, if you don't already have one that's handed to you as part of your EEFs, you can develop a probability and impact matrix that we're going to talk about a lot in a couple of slides from now. Okay, let's move on to the next slide, which is actually the only output. We're already on output. See how fast that was for planning risk management. It's a big example here because there's a lot of stuff in here that's been on the exam recently. And basically, it's going to describe in a structured and very concise way, hopefully, what's your expected risk management level is going to be. How are you going to deal with risk? Another way to say that. It's going to identify all of the various methodologies that you're going to be using to define risk, how you're going to approach risk, how you're going to identify risk, how you're going to deal with risk. It's going to talk about the roles and responsibilities, who's going to lead things, who's going to manage things, who's going to clean up the mess afterwards, what type of budgeting things you have to worry about, the timing involved. Uh, there are some near-term risks you have to worry about first, some far-out risk a little later on did you want to worry about. You're going to figure all that stuff out. And then, as I mentioned, categories a lot. You're going to determine which categories you're going to use to systematically identify and categorize your risks so you don't leave anything out. And if you work in an organization that's already got that put together as part of your OPAs, then fantastic. Use it. But if you have to create your own, then by all means do that. So let's move on to the next slide. Let's talk a bit more about risk categories since the bottom of this slide previous talked about risk categories, we need to define them a little bit more because it's not necessarily as easy as it sounds. They're basically a systematic way to identify what a risk looks like. How does it look? How does it smell? How does it feel? That type of thing almost. It provides a foundation for understanding what's going on. So when you determine and identify your risk, you wind up using these categories to help provide you with a common basis for doing things. Everybody knows what a technical risk is. Everybody knows what a process risk is type of thing. And you want to identify them up front in the planning process so that you are potentially not surprised when some new category pops up. If you think about it ahead of time, you might save yourself some time and effort because you're able to deal with things ahead of time. All right, and down the bottom of the slide, we've got a couple of categories, but I'm going to give you more in a little bit. You can think of things like technical quality performance risk, project management risk, organizational risk, external risk, process risk, as I said before. So there's a bunch of things. I'm going to get into that a bit more in another slide. Now, how do you organize all this stuff? How do you try to figure out what's the best way to work things for your project? Let's move to the next slide. 
and I'll actually show you one way to do that. That is with a risk breakdown structure. And you already know, hopefully, about a work breakdown structure, and that takes a project and breaks it down into major sub-areas. If you're building a house, you're going to have one branch of your work breakdown structure for site prep work, another for digging the hole for the foundation, another one for framing, another one for electrical work, another one for plumbing, that type of thing. Each major category has a branch, if you will, in the organization chart. Risk breakdown structure is exactly the same thing. It takes the risks involved in your project, and does the same thing. On the graphic I have here, picture an organization chart with project name up at the top. I have four branches laid out. The PMBOK has four branches laid out. This is actually figure 11-4 from the PMBOK. Stole that one from the PMBOK. And it shows up at the top technical, project management, organizational, and external risks are the first row. And there are some number of boxes below each one of those to give you an idea of just what they're talking about. So under technical, we see unproven technology, quality of technology, performance risk, and complex technology. And I'll go to the far end on external risks. And what could happen externally is weather, there's labor issues, there's catastrophic risks. And you could have you know, a dozen different branches, and, uh, as many as you need to, in order to fully understand what could impact your project. All right. So I'm going to move on to the next slide, and we're going to get into a whole lot more detail now, because now we're going to start talking about probability and impact stuff. We're going to work on definitions, then we're going to build a probability and impact matrix. Chances are for the exam, they will give this to you. They have been lately, but you need to know how it's built just in case. So basically, a probability and impact matrix defines the combination of the probability and the impact, the dollars and the percentage, if you will. It's what you're going to get to, and it'll help you determine which risks you need to really pay attention to. Remember that chart that had this slanted tornado on Which of the things that are going to be down in the low, low area, we are just going to use standard stuff, and which of the things you're going to be up in the upper right-hand corner of that chart so that you're going to have to do a whole lot more planning. Right, so in the little example I have there is a risk with a high probability of occurring and a high impact is probably going to need some type of response. Right, so it's going to depend on your organization what that level is. That was that dotted line in that other chart. But somewhere along the lines, you've got to decide when you're going to do that quantitative analysis. You'll always do a qualitative analysis, but you'll only do the quantitative analysis for the high impact stuff. And as I mentioned, middle bullet there, this is typically handed to you, but you never know. And the key point about this process is you're going to define the probability and the impact, what it looks like during this particular process so that everybody agrees. You're going to sit down. If you're developing yourself, you need to secure agreement from your team members, from your stakeholders, from anybody involved. Yeah, this is what we're going to use. But if it's handed to you from the organization, then that agreement is probably implicit in the fact that it's part of your organization. It's part of your EEFs, your enterprise environmental factors, and that's what everybody agrees to use. But it's going to vary on your project. And so I'm going to move on to the next slide and get into a bit more detail, a lot more detail. What you're looking at here is a table, if you will, for those who don't have the slides in front of you, if you're walking the dog or riding your bike, whatever the case may be. And it's got a bunch of rows and columns. The columns, the first column on the left is labeled objective or category. You could call that category as well. Okay? And then the other columns, this one happens to have five columns. You could have fewer. But the other five columns that we have here are quantifications of risk. So the first one is low, low. And I'm right outside of Boston, we'd call that one wicked low. 
right? And then there's the next one up is low, and then the next one up is medium, and the next one up is high, and the final one is high, high. Uh, we call that one wicked high, all right? So we've got five levels, if you will, of impact. Now you can have three, you can have two if you want, doesn't matter. Your organization is going to lay that out for you. Three is what you normally see, but this example happens to have five. And then the whole rest of this chart just basically takes those categories from the risk breakdown structure, takes that top box, and then begins to lay out what that means. So if, I'll read off the first row of this chart, which just happens to do with cost. Right? So for a cost to be categorized in the low, low cell now, we're talking combination of, of cost as the row and, and the impact as each one of the five columns, the low, low column for cost, there's no significant impact on cost. Okay, so if there's no significant impact on the cost, we're going to call that low, low, and it's going to get a number. You're going to have to define a number. And the number we see for any box in the low, low category, as a matter of fact, is a point zero five. All right, point zero five is the number to use. Then we're going to move up one level to the low category. So the cost category, anything less than a six percent increase in cost is going to be characterized as a low impact. All low impact stuff is going to get a point two impact. And it's an arbitrary number. You can make up your own numbers, whatever you want. Your organization will give them to you. Next grouping up, medium. And for cost, at a cost increase of 7 to 12% is a medium. A medium we're classifying here as a 0.4. Go up to the next level, high. Now we're talking a 13 to 18% increase in price. A high is going to be a 0.6. And then finally, the last category is high, high. That's more than an 18% increase in cost. And that's categorized as a 0.8. So basically you see 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.6, 0 0.8 as your top four. And if something is wicked low, really low, it's a 0.05. So you can apply anything you want across any other grouping, if you will, across each one of those lines. If we move down to, say, the technology line, if there's no technology risk to your project, that would be a 0.5. It's low, low. But if there's a medium technology risk, that might be acceptable with maybe there's a marginal impact of some kind. It's acceptable risk, but as a marginal impact, you might give that a 0.4 because you've classified that as a medium. You get to pick your categories. You get to pick the ranges within those categories is the point here. And if that's not given to you, you've got to make it up somehow and get agreement from all your stakeholders and everybody that they think that is the right thing to do. Okay, so there's your impact scale. You've now identified that if something happens with your risk, you're going to try to predict what the impact for cost or quality or time is going to be, and you're going to have your impact number from the top of that chart, either 0.05 for a low low, and then 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.6, 0.8, respectively, for low, medium, high, and high, high. Okay, so hopefully that's uh, relatively clear whether you have the slide in front of you or not. And I'm going to move on to the next slide, and now we'll talk about the steps involved in building things and why we're doing this. And we're doing this, first we've got our categories defined, we've got our objectives defined, we've built the chart up, and now we're going to define and modify the probability and the impact matrix that we're going to finish building. So this is the steps you go through. Step one, define the categories. Step two, determine how it's going to be defined totally. And then step three, once it's done, actually do it and then change it as you need to. So three steps involved in that. 
going to move on to the next slide. And why are we going through all this? Because most folks can't even agree on what a word means. So here I've got yet another chart. But a guy named Edmund Conroe went off and did a study. It's in a book called Effective Risk Management, Some Keys to Success. There's a website there, www.risk-services.com. You can go there and see this particular chart if you'd like to. Basically, what he did is he went off and asked people, "What the, in your in your estimation, on a scale of uh, of zero percent to a hundred percent, what does chances of slight mean to you?" And he asked people, "You know, pick that." And most people, when they said chances of slight, well, that's probably five percent. Some people said zero. Some people said as high as fifteen percent. So it is where that risk-averse, risk-seeker thing comes in, that umbrella that I told you about a few slides back. There's a range going on here, and that range varied from nothing to 15%, just for chances of slight. So what are you going to do when you do something like probably not? Well, it's probably not. Well, according to this chart, that ranged from 15% on the low side of change to 45% on the high side, with an average of 30 so there's this whole range of things. So you have to be very careful about how you lay things out and the wording that you use. That's why they're using numbers instead of wording, because you don't want to do that same chart we just finished using things like unlikely or probable or very good chance, because they don't mean as much, and it's not going to help you plan financially. So what's going on? Okay, so that's why we're going through the next step, and the next step is where we're going to do a little bit of math, but not too bad. So we're going to move to the next slide, and we're going to actually look at a probability impact matrix. Now, you remember I showed you that graph way back toward the beginning that it had the X and the Y axis, and it had the two curves, and that made bands. The low-impact band was toward the origin, the medium-impact band was in the middle, and the high-impact band was at the upper end. Well, we have the same thing here except in a tabular format. And what we're looking at is a matrix with four rows and five columns, if you will. The rows are labeled probability, and the columns are labeled impact values. Okay, so probability is pretty easy. What's the chance that something's going to happen? And we did. We only did four. You could do more if you want. You could have ten if you want. doesn't matter. We've done four, and they are 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.6, and 0 0.8 for the rows. The columns are labeled impact values, and there's that same 0 0.05, 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0 0.6, 0.8 that we just finished on the other chart that says for the cost it was anything less than 5% and then 6% uh, cost impact was a low low, that 0.5, that's where this comes in. So now what we've done is we've built that out, and that's along the top, and now we're going to do math. So for each one of those cells, let's start at the bottom left corner, if you will. We're going to multiply a probability of 0.2 and an impact value of 0.05. We're going to come up with a 0.01, okay, straight math. Right math. That's all there is to that. We're going to do that for every single cell. So we're going to figure it out. We're going to fill this whole table in with all uh, 20 cells in this uh, in this chart. So we're ranging numbers from 0 0.01 in the lower left-hand corner to a number of 0.64 in the upper right corner, where we're multiplying an 80% probability and an 0.8 impact. That's a 0.64. All right. Then what we've done, or your management as part of your EES has laid out the fact that the low impact area that they're talking about in that chart, we've colored it green here on this table. So starting from the lower left corner and going uh, up and to the right, uh, by a cell in each direction, is a green area. And that equates to that low probability curve that we talked about in the one of that earlier slide. 
then on the upper right-hand corner area, that's the high, high area, if you will. We've done the same thing. We've taken that upper right-hand cell, we've colored it red, and we've gone two cells in either direction, out X and Y, and then one in the diagonal. And that's our high-impact area from that same graphic that we saw with the high-impact curve. All right? And then the middle is the yellow area, and that's the medium area. Okay, so now we've got three areas laid out, the green area, the yellow area, and the red area. And what this is giving you now is the opportunity for management to say, if your probability impact matrix number is 0.04, you don't have to do any additional planning. It's in the green area. Nothing additional needs to be done. It also says that if your probability impact matrix number is 0.24, you're in the yellow area. That's a combination of 0.6 in probability and 0.4 in the impact. That's in the yellow area. You might have to do two additional things, quantitative-wise, uh, in order to flesh out what's going to happen with that risk. And then finally, if you're up at, say, the 0.48 area, up in the red area, which is the combination of 80% probability and a 0.6 on the impact side, that's in the red area. You're going to have to do a whole lot of stuff to that one. You're going to have to do a quantitative analysis, and you're going to have to put aside a significant management reserve, something along those lines. That tornado chart that I showed you earlier, that's up in that really broad, high area where you've got to do a whole lot of other stuff because you're in the red area. And the red area doesn't have to be at the very top. That red area goes down, at least in my example anyway, on this chart, down to the 40% probability, but it's got a 0.8 impact. So we've got a really, it's the high, high impact area, but even though it's only got a 40% probability of happening, this chart says you're going to do the full quantitative analysis on that and maybe some more, depending on where it is. It's only on the borderline, the very first cell in the red area, but it gives you an idea that since it's in the red area, you've got to do something additional. You can't just get away with standard planning. And that's what these charts do. That's what the probability impact matrix does for you. And chances are, as I said, it's going to be given to you, but you never know, and now you know how to build one just in case they give you the values and you have to build it. It could happen. Probably won't, but you need to be prepared to do that, and now you know how to build one of those things. Any questions on that before I move on? Star 6 to unmute your phone. All right, hearing nothing, I'm going to move on one more slide to this process, and then we'll get into the other process. So let's move on to the next slide. And a few other risk management plan elements to worry about as you're going through and doing a risk management plan. There are stakeholder tolerances. You should know how risk-averse your stakeholders are just so that you can plan around them, how often do they want to be notified if something's going to happen, that type of thing. Just be aware of what they are at the outset and if they change partway through the process, what are they changing to, type of thing, okay? Then is reporting formats, what do they like to see as they're working through things? And the certain stakeholders want to see things one way, others other ways. And then tracking, how does all this thing want to be tracked? And you can reference this any way you want, but how are you going to track things moving forward? Okay, so that is one process for tonight. The second one will go a little bit faster, I think. There was a lot going on in that particular process. Again, ask if there are any questions, star six to unmute your phone. All right, hearing nothing, I'm going to move on to the next slide. And that actually is the end of the plan risk management process. Uh, pause for a second, see if there's any questions. Star six to unmute your phone. All right, hearing nothing, I'm going to move on. And we'll actually start talking about the next process, identify risk. It's process number 11.2. 
And you're looking at the horizontal view of the ITTOs. And we see with this guy, we have 13 inputs, 7 tools and techniques, and 1 output. So let's actually go to the next slide and we'll begin to talk about some of this stuff. It's all about identifying potential risks. And this slide has a bunch more risk categories. So these are the potential things you want to look for, things like budgets and funding, schedules, scope or requirement changes. That's a good one that I didn't talk about before. Personnel issues I didn't talk about before. Maybe the people in your project are going to change for one reason or another, life cycle events, who knows what it could be. Political concerns, not only governmental political stuff, but internal political stuff. Politics is bad everywhere. And there's tons of politics within companies. Legal risk, environmental risk, all those types of things. Be aware of all this stuff as you're identifying risks. That's the point of this slide. Let's move on to the next slide and actually list off the 13 inputs first. I'll read them off, see if I can do it all in one breath here. <sighs> risk management plan, cost management plan, schedule management plan, quality management plan, human resource management plan, scope baseline, activity cost estimates, activity duration estimates, stakeholder register, project documents, procurement documents, enterprise environmental factors, and organizational process assets. I got it. So hopefully you weren't bouncing around too much in a noisy area in that airplane. You heard all that stuff. But we're going to go through these individually anyway. It's not going to take us too long. We're going to glump a few together. Let's move to the next slide, and then we'll talk about the first four, if you will, pretty much all in one swell swoop, if you will. Uh, fell swoop, I'll get it right. And basically, these things here are inputs because they tell you what you're going to need to worry about. Risk management plan is identifies the roles and responsibilities, identifies some of the risks that you already know about because it's been a project you dealt with before, and you're going to start worrying about budget and schedule in there. All right, so that's risk management plan. The next three, cost management plan, schedule management plan, quality management plan, are all going to be very similar. All the wording underneath them is all the same. So basically, the cost management plan, the schedule management plan, and the quality management plan, you just want to make sure when you talk about identifying risks that you understand the impact to cost, the impact to schedule, and the impact to quality. And if you can understand all that stuff and what approach you're going to take for each one of those, should the risk actually occur, then that's all you need to worry about. Right? So that's those four all in like one minute, if you will. Let's move on to the next slide. We'll talk about human resource management plan. This is how you're going to worry about, obviously, the human resources. And here's maybe where you get into some more of the roles and responsibilities. Who's responsible for what? Maybe there's an org chart or a staffing management plan in there that says what type of staffing kicks in, should a risk kick in, that type of thing. Right? And then the scope baseline. You might remember the scope baseline is the combination of the scope statement itself, where you're going to find some assumptions. Maybe there's some assumptions about risk in there. But it also contains a work breakdown structure and the work breakdown structure dictionary. Those three things together are the scope baseline. And there could be some risk identified in there. Okay, so just be aware that if there's anything there, you grab it. And then there's activity cost estimates. As you're worrying about your activity cost, you need to pay attention to what happens to these things if a risk should occur or if an opportunity should occur. All right, so look at it as a range, if you will, in some cases. Let's move on to the next slide. And we say the same thing about activity duration, the schedule now. Time is money, so pay attention to what's going to happen from a schedule point of view. 
And, of course, your stakeholder register is going to be an input because you have to please your stakeholders, and some stakeholders are going to be more keen on identifying certain risks than others. You want to know who those folks are and please them. And then there are project documents. There's a whole bunch of different project documents that can be used, and that's the assumptions log, work performance reports, network diagrams, or value reports, things along those lines that might help you in doing risk if you can have some of those things put together already and ready to go. Moving on to the next slide, then there are procurement documents. If you are doing a procurement during your project, you need to pay attention to the risks involved in doing procurements because there are contracts involved, there are agreements involved there you have to be aware of and make sure that you or anyone in your project team do not place you in a position that you are in breach of contract. Hence, there might be some financial penalties because they didn't do something they were supposed to do because it is a legal document, the agreement, or the contract. Okay, then there are EEFs and OPAs. We already know the EEFs are the things you cannot change. So now maybe there are some industry studies or some risk attitudes or published information that you can use around risk for your industry. And on the OPA side of things, things that you can change, maybe you're going to come up with some new way to document things or a new set of process controls, or new templates, a new lesson learned, things along those lines that you're going to save for other people to use. Moving on to the next slide. That's it for the inputs. We blew through all those 13 pretty quickly. Now we're going to go through the tools and techniques. There are seven of those. They are, I'll read them off in case you're raking the leaves or this is December. Maybe you're shoveling snow or we'll be shoveling snow. Who knows? They are document reviews, information gathering techniques, checklist analysis, assumption analysis, diagramming techniques, SWOT analysis. SWOT stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, and expert judgment. Let's move to the next slide, and we'll go through these guys in turn here. A documentation review is just that. You're going to look at the plans. You're going to make sure that as you're going through things, everything makes sense. You're going to keep all your historical information. Make sure that everything flows in case you are audited for whatever reason. Just make sure that if there are any risks involved, maybe documentation will help you find them. You pay attention to the quality of the plans. You don't want back of a napkin thing. You want something with reasonable quality that you can keep track of and make sure you know what's going on basically what all that means. And it's great if you can document one aspect of your project in really great fashion, but if another part of your project isn't very well documented, you're going to have some risks there because you won't be able to figure out what's what. So try to keep your documentation consistent is the point there. Okay? And move on to the next slide, and we'll talk about brainstorming. This is an information gathering technique. This is what we're into now on the tools and techniques. And you know what brainstorming is. Brainstorming is something you get a bunch of people together and you ask a question, you pose a situation, and you get their opinions on things. So what do you think the risks are, team? What do you think the impact could be? And you write it all down. Basically, it's all that is. You know about that stuff. The Delphi technique is similar, but a little bit different. The PMI loves it. It's a big exam point because that question will be on the test somewhere. It's basically brainstorming, but it's most often remote and it's iterative. So they'll pose a question, an early question in the beginning of the session series. What about X? And they'll go grab the responses. And somebody is responsible for putting all the responses together, building a list, whatever, and then they'll put that list out and they'll ask an additional question. And then they'll solicit more. And they just keep on doing that a couple or three times, however many times they feel they need to, and see what the responses are, see what the range is and get an idea of whether or not this can be anonymous or not. doesn't have to be. But they want to see what the range of the responses is if folks are, have a chance to participate a bit more anonymously, if you will. All right. 
We move on to the next slide. More information gathering techniques. This one's interviewing. Basically, is what it sounds. Question and answer session. And it can be one-on-one -on -one or with a couple of people. Focus groups could be part of interviewing as well. Then there's a thing called the root cause analysis. These are wicked expensive. They involve digging deeper and trying to find out what's really going on, what not only the risk itself, but the cause. Why is this happening? It may not have any bearing on your project. You know, why is it happening? You just want to avoid it. You don't care why it's happening. You just want to get around it. So you have to watch for that one. It can be very expensive to try to do a root cause analysis and get down to the bottom of things. Moving on to the next slide, then there are things called checklist analysis. These are basically you've got a checklist put together by another team who's already obviously been there, and you can just go through with the checklist. Yeah, we did that, we did that, we did that type of thing. You can use your risk breakdown structure to see that you've hit all the various pieces that some similar project did or not, whatever you'd like to do, but it's just another way to do things using a predefined checklist. Then there's assumptions analysis. That is basically taking all the assumptions that were in your scope statement and a few other places and examine them all. Make sure they make sense. Make sure they're valid. If you have to do anything with them, then you need to figure out what it is you need to do. You need to look at the strength of the assumption down the bottom of the slide or the validity of the assumption and then the consequences based on whether that assumption is valid or not and the strength of that. Right? So you're going to look at all those things, put it together, and make sure that it all makes sense. And that's all an assumption analysis is. Moving on to the next slide, there's a thing called a cause and effect diagram. It's also called the fishbone diagram and the Shikawa diagram. You've probably seen them before on either the left-hand side or the right-hand side, depending upon how it's oriented, you will see a problem. In this case, the chart I have is on the right-hand side, and it says problem or defect statement. And that is the effect. Okay, now, what caused that? And that's where the, the fishbone comes in. You've got a backbone going down the middle of this chart, and then you've got diagonals coming off. Each one has got a label on it. In my case, it happens to be material, process, project staff, and hardware. Uh, the four things that I have on this one, and under each one of those, you can have any number of little contributing pieces. So in a material, it says material defects. In a process, it says wrong order, that type of thing. And you're just trying to see what contributes to those major things, and then those are things you can go look for as you're trying to figure out risk. If you have the slide in front of you, you see a yellow thing on the left-hand side of the slide. That is a nifty little shockwave thing that I found online, the URL is still valid, I checked it the other day, and it basically allows you to build one of these things. When you first go there, you're presented with a tabular format. You get to type in what your effect is, and you get to type in, I think it's a dozen different causes, and then underneath each cause, there's room for 10 or so different little things. And then when you're all done, you click the fishbone button, whatever the button's called, I forget what it's called, but it draws that diagram for you. And then you can take a screenshot of that diagram and put that in your plan. Then you've done a fishbone diagram, and you look like an expert. And it was wicked easy to do. The tool is there for you. You don't have to spend hours working on this thing. It's there for you to take a screenshot. Okay? Next slide is a flowchart diagram. Flowcharts come in handy because they allow you to see steps. With a flowchart, you're going to put together a series of steps. You start off with an input. In this case, this one's vertically oriented, so the input's at the top. You can have a flowchart with input on the left as well or the right, depending upon your organization. But you have an input, and then you're doing things, and you're making decisions. So is it raining? 
yes or no. When you say diamond, it's an either-or kind of answer. Depending upon what the answer is, you're going to come out on a different side, and something else is going to happen. So on the example I have here, this happens to be a risk-related one, and the input is risk owner notifies the project manager that a trigger event occurred. And the first question on the diamond is, is should the risk response plan be put into action? And it's a yes or no answer. If it turns out it was something you needed to worry about, then there's a ton of steps you have to go through in order to carry on. But if it turns out the answer is no, then you drop all the way down to the bottom and you're done. Okay? So that's all a flow chart does. It gives you the steps involved. It gives you an idea of what to watch for. Okay, moving on to the next slide. Then there's an influence diagram. And with an influence diagram, the pin box says influence diagrams depict risks or decisions and the uncertainties or any impacts and how they influence each other. So basically, you're just trying to show what influences what. So in this diagram I have here, I have something called delivery times as the main thing. And we see that there are two things that this diagram is saying influences delivery times. They are weather and product information. And it's just do arrows going down to delivery times. Then off of delivery times is an output arrow, and it's pointing off to revenue. Well, revenue is probably impacted by delivery times. So things can cascade is the point of that whole thing. And maybe there's some timing involved. A longer line means a longer time. A shorter line means a bigger impact. You can do whatever you want with an influence diagram. Just know that there are a bunch of circles and arrows pointing to various things, and it's meant to depict how things influence each other. Moving on to the next slide, and there's a thing called a SWOT analysis. This will be on the exam as well in some way, shape, or form. SWOT stands for Strengths, Weaknesses, Opportunities, and Threats. And basically, you're going to look at these four things for your project. What are these project strengths? What are your weaknesses? What opportunities are there? And what threats are there? You're going to list them out, and maybe you're going to do something with them. Maybe you're not. And it's pretty easy. I'm going to, let's go to the next slide, and I'll show you what one looks like. Picture a box with four quadrants in it. The top left quadrant is normally labeled strengths. The top right quadrant is normally labeled weaknesses. The bottom left quadrant is normally labeled opportunities. And the bottom right quadrant is normally labeled threats. You could do this vertically, a vertical box cut into four vertical pieces. And do it that way. It doesn't matter how you do it. But inside each one of those sections, you're going to have some number of things listed. And you should number them. Because if you're going to take this beyond just this little superficial thing here, it's going to be much easier to reference strength S1 and have that going off to some full major plan someplace else than it is group is fully trained. What does that mean? And what I have in here, S1, strength 1 is the group is fully trained. That's what I should have said first. So strength one is group is fully trained, and there you could do more. I, I have space for four. I only listed one in each of the categories. A weakness is lack of resources. So W1, weakness one, is lack of resources. The opportunity number one, O1, is leverage our brand name. You can do that. Maybe you have an opportunity to maybe make some more money leveraging the brand name, and that would point off to a separate plan on how to do that type of thing. And then threats, T1, significant third-party competition. So what are you going to do if a third party decides to respond to your offering, something along those lines? This is just you've done the superficial, if you will, analysis of what could impact your project, and then you're going to go off and now develop other plans to deal with things. So the labeling them is a really good thing to do. I'm going to move on to the next slide. The single output of identify risks is the risk register. Now, that risk register can be a table in your document if you've got a small project, or it could be another whole bound volume. Right? 
down the bottom of the, of the slide, you see what's meant to be a single table, but I didn't have enough space so you could read the words, so I broke it into two and sort of offset it a little bit. But it's got oh, uh, a dozen different fields in the table, if you will. It starts with risk ID. You always want to identify your risks, say what the risk is, what category it's in, what can trigger it. You're always going to do a qualitative analysis. So you're going to put that in there as well. And the impact as part of the chart we just did, the red, green, yellow, you're going to put the score in there that's in the red, green, yellow area. You're going to do a quantitative analysis, perhaps if you went that far, but maybe you're not. Maybe you're stopping here, okay? You could also fill in the value in the owner as well. I suppose I could have ordered those a little bit differently so the owner shows up as well. But different levels of planning can have different owners. If there is no special plan, maybe an operations person was going to handle things. So there'll be a different owner for the low-level stuff, owner A for the low-level stuff, and owner B for the high-level stuff, stuff you need extra responses for. It's a little vary, and you have places that you can put in response strategy, response plan, contingency plan. You can put in the management reserve amount and things like that. You can put a ton of stuff in there, whatever you want to do. It depends on your project and your management, what they want to see, but it can be as simple as a table, or you can have a separate book for each one of your risks, depending upon what's going on. Imagine the risk management plan for the space shuttle program. Something along those lines. It had to be huge, probably a, a whole library in and of itself. Okay, so that is that. And that's the end of Identify Risk. So I'll pause for any questions. Star 6 to unmute your phone. Yeah, we're going to blow through qualitative risk analysis. It's not very long, so we're going to get that one out of the way as well so we can get risk done in two sessions instead of three. So let's move on to the next slide, and we'll talk about perform qualitative risk analysis Process number 11.3, we're looking at the horizontal orientation of the ITTOs, and we see that there are five inputs, six tools and techniques, and one output. So let's move on to the next slide, and we'll talk about those guys. Okay. So when we perform a qualitative risk analysis, what we're trying to do is to determine what, what impact identified risk will have on the project objective. How is it going to hurt us or help us, and what the probability that it will occur, and it will rank them in order, all right, which is the risk that's going to hurt you the most going down to the least. All right? We're going to perform this process all throughout your project. You're going to check it on a regular basis, every day, every week, every month, on a regular basis. You're going to do it all the time because you want to make sure that you capture any new risk that might pop up because something else has happened. We'll get into that in a little bit. There's a big exam dot down here. The PMBOK mentions two techniques you can use during this process to help correct biases that can occur in the data you've gathered. They are definitions of probability and impact. Make sure those are up to date and just continue your expert interviewing to make sure the experts haven't heard about something new as well. Okay? So that's all about. So let's move on to the next slide. Then we'll get into the inputs. There are five of them, as I mentioned. I'll read them off in case you are doing the ironing or doing the dishes. They are risk management plan, scope baseline, risk register, enterprise environmental factors, and organizational process assets. We sort of talked about all of these already. That's why I said we're going to blow right through these because there's not a whole lot new to say. But we'll move to the next slide and note that now we're talking about the risk management plan input, and it's going to give us that structured and expected performance management that we're looking for. All right, so it's a subset of the project management plan, and it's going to list out some of the same things that we talked about before, but now we're worried about 
the qualitative analysis portion of it. So maybe there's a different methodology that you're using for your qualitative analysis than when you were identifying risks. Okay, maybe there's a different role of responsibility for qualitative risk analysis than you were identifying risk. So there's a slightly different bent to each one of the methodology, roles and responsibilities, budgeting, timing, and risk categories, but they're close enough to be the same thing. All right, so you just want to make sure that you're always up to date, you're always looking for new risks and how risk can hurt you. Move on to the next slide. There's a scope baseline. We've already talked about that. The scope baseline, remember, is scope statement, work breakdown structure, work breakdown structure dictionary. You want to look in there to see if there's any talk about risks and how they could impact you. Make sure you've got all that covered. Okay, pretty easy. Move on to the next slide. Uh, and then there is the risk register itself. We just updated in the last process. Now you're actually going to begin to look at these things and see, okay, which ones do I have to do? Which ones are in the yellow area? We have certain types of tasks we have to do if they're in the yellow area, certain other types of tasks we have to do if they're in the red area, that type of thing, and um, then work through uh, using the risk register as our guide. So that's what that's all about, resident input. Move on to the next slide. We'll talk about enterprise environmental factors. Now maybe there are some industry studies that will help you get through the qualitative analysis, types of qualitative analysis for your industry, things along those lines. Maybe there's some risk databases out there as well that you can use from your EEFs because you can't change those. You can suggest changes, but they can ignore you. And then under your OPAs, maybe things for other projects that came along or similar things you can use. And since you're doing a project like that, you can update these things. You can actually contribute and see, what's in, see what you can do to add to those. Okay, so those are the inputs. That was, how fast was that? Huh? Moving on to the next slide. Now let's look at the tools and techniques. There are a bunch of those, and I'll read through them in case you're on the bus. There are risk probability and impact assessment, probability and impact matrix, risk data quality assessment, risk categorization, risk urgency assessment, and expert judgment. See, the expert judgment keeps popping up all over the place. So let's move to the next slide and begin to work our way through those guys. The risk probability and impact assessment is the first thing we'll talk about. This is basically your management has worked through and figured out that there are some risks out there and what are the likelihood those risks are going to occur. You will have talked to people probably to figure all that stuff out. And what you're really doing is investigating the potential impact of that particular uh, risk on your schedule, your cost, your quality, your performance, Whatever, it can be both from a negative point of view and from a positive point of view. And if it's a positive point of view, it's called an opportunity. We'll talk about opportunities again in a little while. So all these things, you have to figure out how to assess them. And the actual act of doing that, which we'll get into in a little bit, with an example, is what the risk probability impact assessment is all about. You're basically going to talk to folks. And you're going to determine the probability of each risk and, uh, and the impact on each objective. The impact of the risk on your objectives is what I'm trying to say here. And there's many different ways to figure that out. So let's move to the next slide, see what we have here. A little bit more on the probability impact matrix. We talked a lot about this last time. And what's happening here is we're going to actually apply the probability and impact matrix. And I'll show you one in a moment. You might even actually pick this up as part of your enterprise environmental factors or your organizational process assets. Someone's probably already done one. You just have to make sure that whether it needs to be updated or not. But it basically points out that risk can be prioritized based on just how much of an impact does that risk have on your project. 
and you know, usually with these things, it's done by the organization, as I mentioned, but you might be able to have to roll your own, whatever the case may be. And as you evaluate each of these risks, you're going to decide what you're going to do to pay attention to them, how you're going to address them. And on the bottom down there in the slide, this matrix really specifies the combination of probability and impact in a numerical manner that will help you decide. Remember I said you're always going to do a qualitative analysis. You're sometimes going to do a quantitative analysis. Well, this is what you use to determine that breaking point and whether you have to do a quantitative analysis or not. So let's move to the next slide, and we'll actually see a probability and impact matrix. This is when we went through a lot last session, but I'll basically describe it for those who don't have the slides in front of them. It's a table. It's a grid. Along the columns, you see impact values. Starts off with a column header of 0.05, so that would be a low impact type of thing. Uh, a very low impact, 0.05 impact. And then with the other four columns are going up from 0 0.2, 0 0.4, 0.6, 0.8. Now obviously, as you get up to 0.8, that's a large impact to your project to see a 0.8 impact. And then along the rows, the rows are the probability. Those are the percentages. So down the bottom of the chart, we have 20%, 0.2 probability. And then a 0 0.4, 0 0.6, 0.8. So four rows. Five columns in your company, they may have a different number of rows and columns. It all flows the same way, so it really doesn't matter. You should ask if there is one, and if there is, and they want you to use it, you should, so you don't get into trouble. But if they don't, you might have to come up with your own. But certainly for the test, there'll be something like this on there. They'll probably give it to you, so you don't have to worry about building one. But if they just give you the impact values and the probabilities on your spare piece of paper, you can do the multiplication, because what you see in the body of the matrix here is let's just multiply. An impact value of 0.05 and a probability of 0.08 multiplied together is 0.04. You stick that in the upper left-hand cell of the body. And then you move across, let's say, and an impact value of 0.2 and a probability of 0.8 is 0.16. It's basically multiplication is all it is. The beauty of the probability and impact table, though, is your management has gone and said, for those with the slides in front of them, you see a green area at the bottom and the low value numbers. You see a red area at the top right-hand corner with the high value numbers because a 0.8 impact at a 0.8 probability is going to be a 0.64, so that's the highest one. So that one and the cells around it are colored red for a high impact, and then everything in between is colored yellow. So somewhere in the bowels of your organization, someone's going to say, well, you don't have to do a quantitative impact for anything green, and you might have to do something for the yellows or something like that. They're going to give you that information. But using this table, you're going to figure out whether you're going to have to do a quantitative analysis. It's that easy. Right, so you're looking for the grid. You're looking for some type of description as to what's an easy risk or what's a difficult risk or what risks you have to do a quantitative analysis on and which ones you don't. All right, so that's what that's all about. Any question on that before I move on? Star six to unmute your phone if you're not sure. All right, I'm going to move on then to the next slide. And now we're going to get into the next tool and technique, which is risk data quality assessment. And this basically is looking at doing the multiplication, looking at the qualitative assessment to make sure that it's accurate, it's reliable, it's unbiased. You're not aiming to trash a group, a, a piece of, of something, whatever the case may be. Make sure it's credible. Make sure it's valid so that you can take it forward and really plan your risks out appropriately. It involves examining the degree to which risk is understood, the accuracy, quality, reliability, and integrity of all the stuff in your risk management plan, and then that risk as it's figured out. And then there's a risk categorization. That guy there, you're going to figure out what 
rough area a risk is it? Is it a technology risk? Is it an operational risk? Is it an environmental risk? Because some risks maybe have a higher probability for your organization than others. Some categories have a higher probability. Maybe your organization has a totally different category of risk. Who knows what it might be. For the test, you just have to know that there are categories of risks and they might ask you to categorize a couple, but they're going to be relatively easy to figure out, so you don't have to worry about it so much. But grouping risk by common root causes can actually help you do effective risk responses and do trending, so pay attention to that as well so that you can trend some things as you're moving along. It's always a good thing to be able to know how to do. Check out all that validity of all these things. Let's move on to the next slide, and we'll talk about risk urgency assessment. For the risk urgency assessment, what we're doing here is basically you're looking at what could happen. If you know the probability of something is going to occur, maybe you also know the timing, perhaps. And if you know something that could potentially occur sooner, say you've got a one-year project and the monsoon season is coming, and you know the monsoon season starts next month, then you're going to worry about planning for the monsoon stuff now, so you're all set to go for that, and maybe you're not worried about the snow season, the winter season, until later on because you know that's further out, you know, things along those lines. You want to make sure you handle that near-term stuff first so that there's no surprises because surprises are bad for the most part. And you're going to try to figure out maybe what some of the risk signs are as well, warning signs that will let you know, well, this is getting awful close. Look at X indicators going up. That means we're getting awful close to risk 127 happening, something along those lines, Okay. And then, as I said, expert judgment is there. It's the last one. You're going to use the judgment, the knowledge of the people who went before you because they know where all the potholes are for sure, so you want to make sure you take advantage of them as much as you can. All right, so let's move on to the next slide, and let's get into an example of how to do one of these things because it's going to be the best way for you to see, and I'll try to describe it the best I can for those who don't have the slides in front of them. All right, so in your talking with folks and whatever, you've identified a risk event that could impact your project costs. You figured out that this one's going to impact costs, not necessarily schedule. And your experts believe that if this risk should occur, your costs would go up by as much as maybe 9%. 9% seems to be the max they could probably go up. And they've also determined there's roughly a 20% probability of this risk occurring. And now we've got to figure out just what we're going to do with this whole thing. Okay, so going to move on to the next slide. We went through this table last time as well. I'll try to describe this. This is basically a table that shows the categories of risks along the row. So we've got a category of cost, time, quality, technology, whatever the case may be, some scale level that is there. And this one has five columns. Five is a really good number for risk impact scale because it allows enough flexibility for you to do certain things based on impact. On this scale, what we've got at the very top, we've got a categorization of the risk going from low, low. I'm right outside of Boston, so I'd call a low, low risk wicked low. And then there's low, medium, high, your standard three. And then there's high, high. I'd call that one wicked high. And your management has given that risk number that we saw on the column headers for that table with the red, green, yellow we talked about a moment ago. So a wicked low, low, low risk is that 0.05 I was talking about. And then it goes 0.2 for low, 0.4 for medium, 0.6 for high, and wicked high is 0.8. So there's that impact that we talked about a couple slides ago. All right. And then on this slide, since we're talking about costs, we're using this because for cost, 
what management has done or what you've done with your team is you've laid out for each one of those five levels, you've laid out some thresholds, okay? So for the cost threshold, what we find is all of the categories have for low, low, no significant impact, okay? So no impact, very little impact is your .05, okay? Then we move on to low. For a low in the cost section, they've said anything less than a 6% is a low risk. So if it impacts cost, say 5%, that's going to be a low. And then 7 to 12% is a medium, 13 to 18% is a high, and then more than 18% is high, high, or wicked high. Right? So for our example that we're using, our expert said it would impact cost 9%. And so we look at our table here, we see under cost, in the middle column, we see a 7% range, 7 to 12% range. So that's where that one fits. 9% is smack in the middle, more or less, between 7 and 12%. We follow that up to the top. We see the impact of that is a 0.4, so that's a medium impact risk. Everybody see where that is? I'll pause for a second. Star 6, then move your phone if you don't see that. Okay, I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on right to the next slide. Okay, now on the next slide, we're back at our probability impact matrix with the red, green, and the yellow. So now we've taken our 0.4 that we just went through from that other table, and we're going to plug that into the top of our probability impact matrix up here on the top. So we get a green arrow pointing down to 0.4 on that column. We know also from the experts what they told us is there's a 20% probability that this risk is going to occur. So we come over to the rows. We go on the 20% probability row, that 0.2 row, and we follow it over into the table until we intersect with the middle column, that 0.4 column. And if you do the math, if you don't have a table in front of you, 0.4 times 0.2 is 0.08. So you got the number. But the important thing here is that's in the green area. You figured out that from looking using this table, this particular risk is in the green area. And it's entirely possible that in your organization, their EEF or whatever says that if you're in the green area with a risk, you do not have to do quantitative risk analysis for this. You'll accept what's there and run with it. If this had happened to be up in the yellow area, your EEFs might have declared that you'd have to do a quantitative analysis. It might not have, but certainly up in the red, you're going to have to do a quantitative analysis up in the red area. So that's how to use this table. It gives you an idea using the color coding, using the numerical scheme, whatever the case may be, that you're going to have to do a quantitative analysis. You might also see it numerically. That's saying anything greater than a .09 maybe. 0.08, anything higher than a 0.08 would need a risk analysis. There are other 0.08s and things like that on this table. So maybe anything higher than a 0.08 would need a quantitative analysis. It can be done that way as well. But the idea is you multiply them together, you look at the table, if you have one handy, and you decide what you're going to do. So this one is low risk. We do not have to do a quantitative analysis. Pretty cool. Any questions on that? Star 6, to unmute your phone. Okay. No questions. I'm going to move on then. So on the next slide, now we're going to look at the output. There's only one. It's risk register updates. We're going to see this output pretty much throughout the entire session today. That any time we've got an output, it's going to be to take that risk register that started as a few columns in a table, and we're going to add columns to the table. Now we're going to add the risk ranking column or the risk priority column, whatever you'd like to call it. We're going to add a category column. We're going to add maybe does it require a near-term response because you figured out that this one's going to happen sooner than some other ones. So maybe yes or no in the near-term response column, something along those lines. And then any other stuff that might be germane, might be relevant to your project. Maybe there's a way to keep track of trending 
uh, in your risk. You've seen a whole lot of technical risks for some reason, a whole lot of environmental risks for another reason, things along those lines. So basically just adding fields to your table, adding columns to your table is all that is. Okay, so that's it for perform qualitative risk analysis. Any question? All right, you're unmuted now. Uh, are there any questions for anybody out uh, there on anything I've gone over in this session? It's all relatively straightforward, just lengthy. Just took a little while to get through it. All right, so with that, let me launch into my outro that PM Lessons Learns conducts three conference calls each month. This is the monthly PMP exam study group conference call and podcast that we're on right now because it is the first Thursday of the month. When we're at full strength, we'd love to have on the second Thursday of each month our PM Lessons Learned Job Shop call. So we need people to run that. And finally, on the third Thursday of each month, we'd love to hold our PM Lessons Learned Best Practices call. We'd love to have people to help out there so we can provide presentations on a wide variety of project management and soft skills topics. Okay, so that's it for this session of the PM Lessons Learned Monthly PMP Exam Study Group Conference Call and Podcast. I'll again thank the live participants on this conference call and everyone that downloads and uses the podcast. We're up well over 50,000 downloads now over the years we've been doing this and doing very well on the 5th edition stuff as well. So thank you, all of you, for your support. And I'll remind you that we are pmlessonslearn.com, project managers helping project managers to make a difference. My name is Dana Safford. So long and keep on learning. This has been a PM Lessons Learned podcast. Project managers helping project managers by sharing lessons learned. Come join our group. Visit our website at pmlessonslearned.com. Till next time, keep on learning.